Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because he saw the signs, because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they had intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Thank you. Will you pray with me? Jesus. Every time we access your name, something happens. Father, every time we open up your word, you speak to us and things change. Father, thank you that you've given us the authority to access the name of Jesus, the name above every name. The name before whom all knees will bow the name before whom all tongues will confess, the name that causes the demons to shudder and shake, the name that redeems, renews, and gives new life. In the name of Jesus, we come this morning because we know that at your name, things change. Open our eyes to see your word because it is the lamp unto our feet and the light for our path. So speak to us. Now let's be enthralled with you and your word. In your name I pray, amen. This is a fun thing to do, to open up the word of God. And it is not just fun and enjoyable, it is significant and powerful. I want to jump in to John chapter 6, the first part of that chapter. But I just want to remind us of who John, who John was. He was the youngest of the apostles, but he lived the longest. Every other one, except for Judas, take him out of the mix. Every other one except John, according to history and tradition, we understand was martyred for their faith. They were put in a... One was put in a hollow log and sawed in half. They were crucified, crucified upside down, filleted alive. The emperor Domitian, towards the end of John's life as an old man, tried to kill him by boiling him in a vat of oil. And he survived. And Domitian, realizing he couldn't kill John, sequestered him in a prison colony in the island of a rocky island called the Island of Patmos. And there he received the revelation of Jesus Christ, as we know as the book of Revelation. He eventually was allowed to leave there after Domitian's death, and we believe go back to Ephesus, where he died an old man. There was something about John that absolutely loved Jesus. That John had watched all the other apostles live faith of obedience, lives of obedience and lives of faith, and watched them be 
heard of them be martyred for their faith in brutal, grotesque fashion. And yet he continued to be one who was willing to suffer and not diminish his devotion. (laughs) I'll just speak for me. Those men were cut from a different cloth. And it's good for me to interact with their lives as recorded in Scripture because I see something in them that I often lack. And out of love for Jesus, John wants to tell us some things about this one that he loved. That we may believe. You know, I'd listen to someone like John. I've said this many times before, that a young man is a theory, an old man is a fact. Young men are theories. They're ideas. They're unproven. Not quite sure how that path's going to go. Old men are facts. We got some history, got some life, got some track record. We've been proven. John's life is a fact. I'd listen to someone like John. And in John 6, verses 1 through 15, that Shelley read for us, we see the the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the multitudes. Now, there's a a, a correlation between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Old Testament because you can go back to 2 Kings 4 and read the precursor to this miracle. 2 Kings 4 tells us the foreshadowing of this miracle in John 6. I'll get to that later. But this is the first miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. In Mark, Matthew 14, Luke 6, or sorry, uh, Mark 6, Luke 9, and now in, in John 6. It's the only miracle outside the, uh, of, of the, the crucifixion and the resurrection story that's in all four Gospels. The first and only. So it must be important. There must be something about John's perspective of this miracle that's different than the previous three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why? Because John wrote this later. He's an older man. And, and why would John retell something that's already been recorded? See, here's what happens. When you read of this miracle, the only miracle outside the crucifixion and resurrection account, the only one that's in all four, you, we, we, we read of this in, in, in the three first Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptic Gospels. A little, little info for you. The synoptic Gospels. Say synoptic. There you go. Sounds so smart. That, what that means is they're similar. They tell the same things. A little differently, but the same things. If, if you read this miracle in the synoptic Gospels, you might leave with this idea in your mind. Jesus has the ability to solve every problem, even when those problems are not part of the plan. Right? That's a good thing to have in your mind, isn't it? And that sounds like something you could amen, that Jesus has the, has the authority, the ability to solve every problem, even when those problems aren't part of the plan. That sounds like a, hey, amen, that's a good one right there. That sounds like that, but we've got to be careful. Because though that's comforting at a certain level, you have to understand that that implies that Jesus might get surprised by problems that suddenly arise if they're not part of the plan. Now, he can still solve them. But it leaves us with the implication that that there might be, wait a minute, this wasn't part of the plan. It's all right, though, I got this. Or, or, Or maybe slightly better, that Jesus can supply for unforeseen needs. But again, the implication with that is that there are unforeseen needs. And it diminishes the majesty of God. It misses the majesty of who Jesus is. And so we have to understand. John 6, 1 through 15, though speaks of the same miracle, says it a little differently. There's something here that the previous three do not have. And what John 6 has that the previous three don't have is what John tells us in verse 6. Because in verse 6, There's truth in verse 6 of John 6 that changes everything. Notice what verse 6 says. 
He, Jesus, asked this only to test him for, here it is, he already had in mind what he was going to do. That's the thing, right, that right there, that is not listed in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And, and this changes everything, because here's, here's what it says. If Jesus has the plan before there's a problem, it means there's no predicament that is a problem for Jesus. Do you understand? See, the others, Matthew, Mark, Luke, had a problem that was a surprise. Jesus had the answer to it. But what we know in John is that the problem wasn't a surprise because Jesus had the solution to the problem before the problem was ever noticed. So here's what we got to understand. For every problem in life, there's a pre-planned solution in the mind of God. You got to understand that. And this is why it's so vital for the Christ follower to walk hand in hand with Jesus into his solution rather than live in obedience and walk towards destruction. Because even a Christ follower, you'll go to heaven when you die, but you walk in disobedience, you're going to walk yourself into destruction and out of God's. Now, God's solution might be different than your solution, but he already has in mind what that is. And so our lives become about the process of walking hand in hand with him. Not just in direction, but in proximity. Into the solution. Rather than walking in disobedience and destruction. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? It's been said that when God wants to do something wonderful, he starts with a difficulty. But when God wants to do something great, he starts with an impossibility. See, many of the problems that we face are really tests from God. Now, things can be a test or a temptation. And there's one way you know the difference between test and temptation. The devil will use temptations that he might destroy you. God will test you that he might employ you. And so what the disciples are facing here is a test. Because God wants to employ them. It was a test of trust. And initially beginning with Philip, the test of trust was, Philip, do you trust me to provide? Am I enough? So back to the beginning of this account. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the, to the far uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee, this is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. Jesus, Jesus had just done these miraculous signs. The people see that, and the people think, I want to see more of that. I want to get in on that. And so these whore, these crowds follow him. The Bible says there's 5,000 men. What it doesn't tell us is the number of women and children. Most theologians would guess there's about 20,000 people. He sees these crowds, these hordes coming towards him. And what does he do? He, he, no, he, does, he walks away from them. He goes up on a mountain with just his, like his closest guys. See, here's the thing. Jesus knows how easy it is to draw a crowd. All you got to do is put a coffee shop at your church. Like he knows. All you got to do is give the people what they want. And he doesn't trust the crowds. Because the crowds most time don't come for the right reason. And very soon after this, Jesus will dramatically thin those crowds. And many will walk away. He doesn't need crowds. Jesus knows the crowd is there because they saw him do the cool things. And honestly, there's a lot of people like that. I mean, probably none of us here in this place, but... You know, it just kind of had the, the unstated... Theology, the unstated doctrine that I'll go to church and I'll believe and, and, and I'll agree as long as Jesus keeps doing good stuff for me. 
But here's how it works. As soon as trouble hits, as soon as disease hits, as soon as loss hits, people end up thinking, well, if that's how God's going to show his love for me, I'm out. Right? If we're honest, that's why some of you walked away from him in the past. See, crowds don't impress Jesus. He is not in it for likes and thumbs. He doesn't care if there's a blue check mark by his name. See, many, many of us have the, this theology. Rather than Jesus is Lord, I am his servant, our unspoken theology is this I am the Lord, and Jesus is my servant. So as long as he is nice, I will. Be careful to have the right theology. Now, at the same time, Jesus has great compassion on those in need and desires to step into those areas and moments and seasons of need. For Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize in our weakness. We have one who has taken the stripes and absorbed the shame and the scorn. And so he wants to enter into those times as long as we enter into those times holding his hand and not demanding his hand. And so Jesus, seeing this need that that has come about in verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where are we going to buy enough bread to feed all these people? Do you know why Jesus started with Philip? He could have started with any of them. Do you know why he started with Philip? Because Philip was from a town called Bethsaida, which was very near where they were. Here's what's happening. Philip knew the area. So Jesus started with the expert. So be careful. Here's what this means. If you think you know best, God's going to test you. Right? If you think you know best, go on then in your pride. Tell God how it should go down. You better stay humble. So Philip's answer to this, now we know from verse 6 that we already know Jesus had a plan because he saw the problem ahead before there was a problem. So he already has the plan. Philip's response was, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread so everybody could have even a bite. So Philip sees this. Here's the question from Jesus. And his response is, there is no way possible. Have you ever told God that? Philip does a quick calculation. And he comes up with eight months, like we're talking $30,000, $40,000 wouldn't be enough to give everybody a single bite. Here's the thing. This is the issue a lot of people ready to. They turn acts of faith into calculations. And calculations always run counter to faith. Now, I'm not saying be dumb and be stupid. I'm saying use wisdom. The Bible talks a lot about that. Plan, use strategy. But at the end of the day, when it is an act of faith, your calculations will always run counter to it. And they'll always come up short. See, the wrong answer was Jesus. None of us have that much money. Like, that's too much. There's nowhere, even if we had the money, there's nowhere around, ain't no smart and final or Costco that we can run. We can't. And not only that, we didn't even think to bring a lunch. Right? Did you notice It didn't say they all pulled out their lunches and God used what they... They didn't even prepare. The wrong answer was, we can't do... There's no way. The right answer would have been this. Philip to say, you know, Jesus, I don't know, but we saw what you did with the wine thing, and we just saw what you did with the lame guy. And so, honestly, I'm going to leave this one up to you. Go ahead and surprise me. That would have been the right answer. Right? And every time we run up an impossibility, 
Our answer ought to be, I don't know. I saw what you did then. I read what you did then. I know the stories of the Old Testament. I know the Testament of the New Testament. I don't know what you're going to do now. Go ahead and surprise me. That's the right answer. And then we're introduced to this other disciple. Another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here's this boy with five small, small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far are they going to go among so many? I love Andrew. Andrew goes and steals a kid's lunch. Now, sometimes the disciples are just, they're just rude. And he brings this boy to Jesus. The thing I love about Andrew, Andrew in the scripture, he's always bringing people to Jesus. He brought his brother Simon to Jesus. He brings this little boy to Jesus. Later, he's going to bring a whole bunch of Greeks to Jesus to meet him. That we don't know a lot about Andrew. He was, he's not a very well-known uh, disciple or apostle. Apparently, he gave no great message. Apparently, he did no great act of faith. Apparently, he did no great work. Apparently, he was not a great leader. There was nothing, there was nothing great about this. He just, we just know his name. But, but we do, what we do know about, the only thing he did really well, he was a connector of people to Jesus. He just continually introduced people to Jesus. Like he didn't have reasons. He didn't have explanations. He didn't have theology. He had, all he had was a friend that he wanted his other friends to meet. But did you notice, where did this lunch come from? A boy. What was the boy's name? Boy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Did, did you notice? We're never given his name. And if you go back and read this account in the previous three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he is actually written out of the Gospel story. He's not even listed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He wasn't significant enough even to get a mention. He's written out of the Gospels. Not only that, is he unnamed and unknown, what we know about him is that he is dirt poor. Because the Bible says he brought what kind of bread? Barley. Barley was the bread of the destitute and poor, and it's what you use to feed your donkeys. Barley and two sardines. That's what they were. Here, please, some of you need it. Some of you, God brought you to church today for this thing right here. Understand this. Unknown and unnamed does not mean unimportant. Others may not see you. But one of the names of God is Elroy, the God who sees. He sees. Where do you think this boy got his lunch? Who said that? From his mama. What, what little junior high kid's going to remember to pack lunch? The disciples didn't remember it. Think about the mom who packed this boy's lunch. I don't know who she was, but just think. Maybe she was one of those stay-at-home moms. That all they do Clean up, pack up, prepare, clean up, pack up, prepare, clean up, pack up, prepare, day in, day out, thankless, unknown, unnamed. Just worn out and tired, right? Our culture doesn't put a high degree of power to the title stay-at-home mom. Or maybe she's at the other end of the spectrum. Maybe she's one of those working moms that is up early, still taking care of everybody and everything, rushing to get everybody out the door so she can get out the door, and she regrets not having enough time to spend with her own children. But at least she can pack a lunch for them. Listen. You may feel a bit down 
about your station in life right now. You may feel as though there aren't many gifts that you possess, not many talents that you bring to the table that you can't do much. But hear me when I say this and pay attention to me. How dare you hold in contempt the creation of God, which you are? You are precious in His sight. He sees you. He knows you. And He can use every ounce of your inability for profound things. God can do great things with the little that you put into His hands. The little lunch that you pack can be used to care for multitudes. You matter. Who you are matters. And God sees you. You may feel insignificant. But please understand that miracles do not happen without the lunches you pack. Do you understand? Do you understand? Get yourself into the master's hands. And I love Andrew's response. Yeah, we got five loaves. I mean, we're talking, I mean, they're like little, like little pita bread is what we're talking about. That's what they were like a little pita bread sandwich thing. We got five of those and two sardines, but whenever you sell Jesus, whenever you say to God, God, I got dot, 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 but you have just walked your way away from his plan. The moment you add but, you have walked your way out of his plan. So here's the lesson. Get this. Don't let your butt walk you out of a miracle. Now, none of you can be offended because it's only one T and not two T's. So relax. Don't let your butt walk you out of a miracle. God, I know you want to. God, I know you can. But, God, I'm counting on you. I don't have much, but I don't have much. Don't let your butt walk you out of a miracle. Now, I love how Jesus handles his God. Because here, they've seen him do all this stuff. And now there's another opportunity for Jesus to do stuff. You'd think they say, but we saw what you did. And we saw what you did. And we saw what you did. This ain't going to be nothing but a thing. But they respond, every one of them, with doubt. And I love the fact that Jesus does say, Dadgummit! it! Why are you people so bullheaded, stiff-necked, and thick-skulled? Why don't you believe? He doesn't do any of that. I love his response. He says, all right, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. We sat down, 5,000 men and all 20,000 people. Did you notice what he does? Jesus hears their doubt, sees their doubt, and he doesn't chastise them. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't give them theology lessons and Bible lessons. He just employs them. You got some doubt? That's all right. I work with that. See, apparently, God can use people who don't believe too much. But here's what we have to understand. The job God gives will be just beyond the proportion of your faith. They'll understand what was happening. You read those other Gospels, this account, and Jesus will say, all right, y'all feed them. Apparently, when Jesus said, you feed, remember what we've learned so far in this gospel? God's commandments are God's enablements. When God says, do something, he's already given you the power to do it. So when Jesus said, you feed them, apparently he has transferred his authority and power to them. They could have done the miracle. Did you miss that part of this? He says, I'm going to employ you just beyond the measure. I'm going to put you according to your faith. And I've told you you could do this by telling you to do it. And so if you have the faith, you can work. This is amazing to me. But what's more amazing to me is they said, but. So the only God, the only job God could give them was crowd control. Apparently, they only had the faith to tell the people to sit down. 
He will employ us to the measure of our faith. According to your faith, be it unto you. I wonder how much we walk ourselves out of miracles. And so Jesus employs them. He says, if that's all you're capable of, then do what you, whatever, that's fine. I'll take care of it again. I mean, I was going to let you handle this one. That would have been fun for you. But apparently, if all you can do is tell people to sit down, then just go ahead, run crowd control. And just watch me work. And I love how Jesus approached. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as he wanted, as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Jesus took the bread. What's the first thing he did? Did you see that? He gave thanks. Listen, they're going to eat in public, and so he's going to pray in public. They're going to eat together, so he's going to pray together. He said, it's time to sit down and eat, and we're going to pray out loud together in front of everybody. And honestly, he did this for their sake, not for his sake. For we will learn later in John 11 at Lazarus' tomb where Jesus prays out loud to the Father. And he says, I don't say this out loud for my sake because I know you always listen to me. I say this out loud for their sake. And so Jesus has the opportunity in public to to partake in God's blessing. And before he does, he says in public out loud, I will give thanks because all of you need to see my example. Listen, this is a good lesson example for every one of us who claim to be Christ followers. Every time, still to this day, that my parents go, whether it's in private or especially when it's in public, pray out loud in thanksgiving to the Father. We did it when I was young at home. We did it when I was young in public. I know my parents still do that in private, and we still do that in public. And my father always leads. Why? Because it's the example and the influence. Shell's mom, every time we eat it with her, in private and in public, she will lead out loud. Because it's an example and it's influence. Parents, Pay attention to me. Your habits and your practices are still very important for your kids. Young and old kids alike. When your kids are young, parents, you lead by instruction. You will do this. You will not do that. You will wear that. You will not wear that. It's Joshua. As for me and my house... We will. I'm not having a family meeting about it. I'm not asking the kids to like it. I'm telling them. Wife, you're not going to push back on me on this one. But as our kids get older, we stop leading by instruction and we lead by influence. Because no longer when your kid's old can you tell them. Now, parent, your leadership is by influence, by your habits and your routines. Once me and my siblings were out of the house, I'm going to tell you this, we know where our parents are every Sunday morning. There's no question. They adjust their schedules around it. They adjust everything. We know where they are every Sunday morning in one place or another. They're going to travel out to California a few weeks. They're going to be in church on Sunday morning. Shelly knows where her mom is every Sunday. Sunday morning. Why? Because they're leading us by instruction? No, not one bit. But they're still leading us by example and influence. Those examples are still important. Those commitments are still important. Parent, pay attention. You young parents, you're here, good for you, good on you. Set the example and instruct with authority. But make sure, parents, that you know that when your kids are out of the house, here's what happens. 
when you stop attending and you stop serving, you're still instructed. And what your instruction is saying is this. It may be important to be in church when you're young, but just follow my example, because when you're older, other things are more important. You understand? It's important when you're young, but as you get older, just follow mom and me. Like it's Sunday, it's not that important. I mean, you got something better to do, go ahead and do it. The Bible says it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Divided between thought and intent, bone marrow. The story goes on, verses 12 and 13. When they had had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. When the Bible says they had had enough to eat, it uses the word for gluttony. Like when they were stuffed. You know when you eat so much you got the meat sweats? You, you know what that's like? When it's hard to lay down after that because you want to roll over, but the belly's too big and you can't like, ah, uh, you know? Like they, they, see, now think about it. Let's put this whole thing together. Philip was asked to feed them, and Philip in his calculations thought about only how little they had. We don't even have enough to give them a bite. Philip's calculations led him to the minimum, and Philip forgot what we often forget, that God is not a God of scarcity. We forgot. He's the God that talked to the woman at the well that said, if you only knew who it was you were talking to, you want to approach me like I'm the God of scarcity, that something's beyond my hand? See, it fits with what Paul will say later. God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. A little peace, really? How about being filled? Jesus' plan was give in abundance as much as you could handle. And I love the fact that Jesus says, tells them, go gather the pieces. Gather the leftovers. Have you ever felt as though what you've got left in your life right now are the pieces of everything that's falling apart? Are the leftovers of the dream you once had, the hope you once had, the relationship you once had? Have you ever felt like, I got... Crumbs and pieces, man. I've been so hurt and let down and disappointed and it's fallen apart time and time and time and time again. I would love to put the puzzle together, but I just got a few pieces of it, man. I got more holes than I got pieces. I love the fact that God uses the crumbs and the fragments of our lives to produce abundance and fulfillment. See, nothing is wasted when it's put in the master's hand. The crumbs, the fragments, the pieces of your hopes, your dreams, your life, it all comes together in a coalescence of abundance when it's put in the hands of the master. You think it's ruined? Put it in God's hand. I know it sounds trite, but you think it's trash? Put it in God's hand. You think it's useless? I dare you. Surrender it. Twelve baskets left over. You better not miss the point of this. How many disciples were there? Twelve. So here's what he has a basket full for every disciple. Here's what I love. Don't miss this. Every one of these disciples that had no faith, every one of these disciples that doubted God's providence and power, every one of these guys that said there's no way, every one of them walked out with a full basket. After they had had enough, they had an abundance of it and walked out with a basket. Why? Because this is again another symbol, sign, and confirmation of God's grace. 
that we're blessed by His hand because of His grace, even when we don't believe or behave like we should. Do you understand? You want to know the heart of God? Look at Jesus. Jesus says, I do nothing on my own. I only do what I see my Father doing. This is God's heart for you. But please understand, we got to get this. Whenever there's a blessing, it's going to be followed by a testing. You've got to understand that. Because I know the moment we see God do something, we think, yeah, this is it. I'm good. I'll arrive. Ain't nothing else. And then all of a sudden, something happens, right? And when that something happens, we're right back where we were. But God, how could you? Why would you? What's the solution? Every blessing is followed by a testing. Notice the flow of John so far. We see the blessing of healing the official son. That's followed by a lame man for 38 years at a pool. We see the healing of the man lame 38 years at a pool, followed by 5,000 hungry men plus everybody else. We see the miraculous blessing of the fiend of 5,000. It's going to be followed by the disciples in a storm that's going to threaten their lives. Every blessing is followed by a testing. Why? Why would that happen? We cry out for Jesus to intervene. We cry out for God to rescue, and he does, but it's followed by a test. Why? Two reasons. One, to see if we learned anything about God, or if we just want the blessing. And secondly, to grow you, to take you to the next level. So every time God intervenes, just realize there's going to come another test. For you to prove, God, I want you, not just the blessing. And I'm ready for you to take me to the next level. Because I know what you've done. And so, when you face difficulty, when I face difficulty, the first thing we've got to think is this. What have I already learned about Jesus? The first thing that has to go through our mind, not self-absorbed, not why me, not God, when are you, not God, please. The first place that we go in our mind is what do I already know about my Jesus and my God? See, difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. Difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the agent who's doing the work. So here's what I mean. The difficulty of a fourth quarter last minute touchdown drive for Mahomes is not very difficult. But the difficulty of a one minute touchdown drive compared to let's say old school Trent Dilfer, very difficult. Depends on whose hand the difficulty's in. See, the people love the provision but miss the purpose. And that's why Jesus walked away from him. He said, because you're not desperate enough for me yet. You're not desperate enough for me yet. And all of this sets up, I'm going to wrap up here real quick. All of this sets up what's coming in two weeks. We're going to spend three weeks in John 6. And this all sets up what's coming in two weeks. Now, the, 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 the passage that correlates with this is, is 2 Kings 4. And what we learn, I want you to understand this, what we learn is that God oftentimes gives us glimpses of what's coming. And the glimpses are great, but what's coming is greater. And so what we see in 2 Kings 4 is this, this is the, pre, the forerunner to this miracle. What we see in 2 Kings 4 is you have Elisha, the prophet, and he's with about 20 seminary students. And because they're seminary students going in the ministry, they're really, really poor. And they have, there's a hundred of them, and they have 20 dinner rolls. And they have no food. And they say this, these words, how far will 20 loaves go for a hundred? And Elisha, the man of God, says, look, just pass it out. You'll have plenty. And they have baskets left over. It was the pre-runner to this miracle in John 6. It was the shadow of what was coming. As good as 20 dinner rolls feeding 100 was, it was what was coming was even better. As neat and as, as significant as that was in the old, what was coming, so much better. And I want you to remember, I want us to remember what we've learned about Jesus. 
What's coming is always better than what has been. As good as what has been has been, what's coming is even better. It's Jesus turning water into wine. The first wine was good, but what was coming was even better. See, here's what we got to get. With God, every next is better than everything that's come before. Your next steps with Jesus are better than any of your steps that have come before. That's, that's how it's supposed to be. And in the grand scheme, your next life in eternity is so much better than anything of this life. The best is always to come. So in spite of what is, we say, God, in spite of what is right now in my life, I will put all of me into your hands. The pieces, the fragments. And I will choose to believe in faith that the best is coming. And so this brings me to this wrap up here. It's an issue of repentance. Repentance is turning around and going the other way. And for some of you, that means a quantum shift in your life. And for some of you, it, it means the shift from, yeah, I mean, I, I love him. And I'm there most times. And, and he knows my heart. And to all things, always, all the time. It means I will give myself fully in obedience. Now, the great thing about God is His love never fails. It never ceases. His love never comes to an end. There's nothing we can do or not do that would get us outside the scope of His love. Nothing can separate us from it. Not height, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things come. Not even life or death can never separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. And because of His love, the best is yet to come. But we have to walk hand in hand with Him. And so for some of us, it means repentance. And to choose to love Him with the core of who we are. All of our desires are tuned to His desires. All of our feelings are tuned to His heart. All of our ways of thinking are transformed by the renewing of our minds. All of our abilities and properties are placed over of our life are placed into the kingdom's authority. It's repentance of our apathy towards the kingdom, of our apathy towards complete obedience, of our lethargy and laziness, of our complacency that's good enough, of our pride and arrogance to think I have nothing that I need to repent of. And the full placing of all that brokenness into the master's hand. I want you to pray with me. And I want to give you an opportunity, according to how God directs you. I don't want you to rush through this. I want you to take time. I encourage you to do your own business with the Holy Spirit. It's a profound thing when day after day you cry out and say, Holy Spirit, I want you to convict me of my apathy, my lethargy, my complacency, my arrogance, my pride. I want you to convict me. Not, not so that I'll be destroyed or shamed, but so that I can repent. And, 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 and in repentance, give me all that your mercy and grace will allow me. to come back, as it were, to your first love. So I don't want you to rush through this. I want you to take time with the Spirit, whatever that means. And commit your life, your whole life, your whole self, your future, to His good hands and His good plan. The fragments and the pieces. 
to repent of those things and say, God, I, I come back to you. Renew my first love. To come back to him and say, again, amaze me at who you are and your word. Father, I thank you that your love never fails. I thank you that you never walk away from us, even in those times we walk away from you. I thank you, God, that you are faithful and secure, sound and true. I thank you that you've proven your love and you've proven your power. Time, so we have no reason to doubt except for our own frailty. Forgive us. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would convict us of all the buts that we've added to who you are and what you do. Forgive us, convict us of how we've allowed a complete and total desire to follow and be obedient, how we've allowed that to be muted and darkened and lessened. Holy Spirit, convict us for how we've taken light of the privilege and power that's in your word. Amaze us by it again. Holy Spirit, I ask that as you do what you do and convict us, let that not be for our shame or our destruction, but rather for our repentance. And in repentance, Father, then give us everything that your mercy and grace will allow because you love us so profoundly. Father, as, as, as our church speaks to you, responds to, reflects on you, reflects on the truth of your word. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Redeemer. Thank you for your love that's unending. In your name I pray, amen. Again, we're going to sing a song just as a response. Whatever work you need to do with God, do it. When God's done that work, leave. And go tell your huddle about this guy that you know. That changes everything when you trust him. Let's sing.